Hello gang, Bill Creasy here with the third episode of our Holy Week series on Scripture Uncovered. We left off last time with Jesus entering Jerusalem and day by day increasing the conflict with the religious leaders. He entered on Monday and was encountered by a group of people, a delegation sent by the religious leaders to discredit him. And then day by day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, he escalated that encounter. And I noted at the end of our last podcast that by the time we get to Thursday, it's as if Jesus and the religious leaders are standing in a room awash to their knees in gasoline, each holding a lit match. Now you have to wonder, as all that conflict was going on, what were Jesus' disciples thinking? I mean, they knew him quite well. They were with him for three years on the roads of Galilee. They saw him teach. They witnessed the miracles. They knew who he was. At Peter's confession of faith at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus said, Who do people say I am? And Peter answered for the group, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And at the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter's confession of faith was validated by God the Father in the presence of two credible witnesses, Moses and Elijah. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. So Jesus' disciples knew who he was. But what did they expect when they got to Jerusalem? Certainly they didn't expect what they got. So here we are on Thursday, and the conflict with the religious leaders has escalated to a place where it's about to explode. What were Jesus' disciples thinking? Now, for this podcast, I'd like to focus on one of those disciples in particular, Judas Iscariot, because after all, Judas will play a pivotal role in the events about to occur on Friday with Jesus' trial, crucifixion, and death. Who was this fellow, Jesus, a Judas Iscariot? Who was he? Judas's name, Judas Iscariot, Judas is Judah in Hebrew, Jacob's fourth son. And Iscariot is probably from the Hebrew meaning a man of Kirioth. Kirioth was a village about 10 miles south of Hebron in the territory of the tribe of Judah. Now, if that's the case, Judas is the only one of Jesus' 12 disciples not from Galilee. Now, that seems significant to me. Galilee, as we already noted, was a hotbed of radical revolutionary movements. Judah, down in the south, was a much more conservative place. Judas is the son of Simon Iscariot, we learn in John chapter 6. And Judas is always listed last in the list of Jesus' 12 disciples. Peter and Andrew, James and John are always listed first. Judas's motives for betraying Jesus are unclear in the Gospel accounts, opening the door to considerable speculation. So listing Judas last among the disciples suggests that all of the gospel writers viewed him as somehow 
less than the others, especially less than Peter, Andrew, James, and John, or as somehow being problematic, someone we should watch closely of, a potential fly in the ointment. John tells us that Judas held the money bag and used to steal the contributions. John also tells us that Satan had been prompting Judas to betray Jesus prior to entering him. And we learn in Matthew that Judas went to the chief priests and he said, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? And he's paid 30 pieces of silver. So if we're to believe John that Judas held the money bag and used to steal the contributions, that suggests that Judas had, well, a very flexible sense of right and wrong and was little more than a petty thief. And if Satan is prompting Judas to act and then enters him, that suggests two things. Number one, that Satan targeted the disciple most susceptible to his influence. And number two, that Judas was not entirely responsible for his own behavior. Judas initiates the betrayal by approaching the religious leaders and they offer him 30 pieces of silver for his actions, perhaps appealing to a sense of avarice. But if Judas was little more than a petty thief and an avaricious person, why did Jesus choose him as the disciple to begin with? Did Jesus set him up, deliberately choosing someone who knew would betray him in order to fulfill scripture? Furthermore, John tells us that Satan entered Judas prior to Judas actually betraying Jesus. So perhaps that diminishes Judas's culpability since he was influenced by a much stronger personality than himself. And what about the money? Exactly how much is 30 pieces of silver? Is it enough to motivate Judas's betrayal? Now only Matthew specifies the amount of money Judas is given. The Greek word in Matthew 26 verse 15 is augurion, silver coins, not specifying what type of coins they were. My best guess is they were Tyrian shekels. A Tyrian shekel contained about 14 grams of silver. At today's value, a Tyrian shekel would be worth about $8. So 30 shekels would be about $240 in our, our terms. $240 would not have provided much of a motive for betrayal. So it must have been something else. When Jesus is condemned and sentenced to death, Judas returns to the chief priest in remorse, saying, I have sinned in betraying innocent blood, and he flings the money back at them. And then we read in Matthew that Judas then went off and hanged himself. Now, that really complicates the case. If Judas betrayed Jesus for malignant motives, 
why would he then show remorse and fling the money back, saying, I've sinned in betraying innocent blood, and then go out and hang himself? Well, we need to look at this a lot more closely. Let's work through our four Gospels and see what we can learn. The bargain that Judas strikes in the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 14, 10 through 11, we read, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went off to the chief priest to hand him over to them. When they heard him, they were pleased and they promised to pay him money. Then he looked for an opportunity to hand him over. In Matthew 26, 14 to 16, we read, Then one of the twelve, who was called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that time on, he looked for an opportunity to hand him over. In Luke 22, 1 through 6, we read, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread called Passover, was drawing near. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking a way to put Jesus to death, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, the one surnamed Iscariot, who was counted among the twelve, and he went to the chief priests and temple guards to discuss a plan for handing him over to them. They were pleased, and they agreed to pay him money. He accepted their offer and sought a favorable opportunity to hand him over to them in the absence of a crowd. So what do we learn from this comparison? Well, Mark gives us the original version in which we receive the basic bare-bones facts. Judas initiates the action. The chief priest promised to pay him money. Matthew expands the scene noting that Judas asked to be paid, and we learn the amount, 30 silver coins, or in our terms, about $240. Luke expands the scene even more, saying that the chief priests were seeking a way to put Jesus to death, but they didn't have a plan. Satan enters Judas, and then Judas approaches the religious leaders with a plan of his own, and they agree to pay him. John omits the scene entirely. So we move on to our next step, the Last Supper. In Mark 14, 17 to 21, we read, When it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they reclined at the table and were eating, Jesus said, Amen, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed, and they said, One by one, surely it's not I. And he said to them, One of the twelve, the one who dips with me into the dish. For the Son of Man indeed goes, as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for that man if he had never been born. In Matthew 26, 20 to 25, we read, When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. While they were eating, he said, Amen, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Deeply distressed at this, 
they began to say to him one after another, Surely it's not I, Lord. He said in reply, He who has dipped his hand into the dish with me is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for that man if he had never been born. Then Judas' betrayer said in reply, Surely it's not I, Rabbi. He answered, You have said so. In Luke, we read, And yet, behold, the hand of the one who is to betray me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man indeed goes as it's been determined, but woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. And they began to debate among themselves who among them would do such a deed. That's Luke 22, 21 to 23. And finally, in John, we get a longer account. John 13, 21 to 30. When he had said this, Jesus was deeply troubled and testified, Amen, amen, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another at a loss as to whom he meant. One of the disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, was reclining at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter nodded to him to find out whom he meant. He leaned back against Jesus' chest and said to him, Master, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I hand the morsel after I've dipped it. So he dipped the morsel and took it and handed it to Judas, son of Simon the Iscariot. After he took the morsel, Satan entered him. So Jesus said to him, What you're going to do, do quickly. Now, none of those reclining at table realized why he said this to him. Some thought that since Judas kept the money bag, Jesus had told him, buy what we need for the feast, or to give something to the poor. So he took the morsel and left at once. And it was night. So what do we learn from this comparison? Mark has Jesus announce at the Last Supper that one of the twelve will betray him. The apostles respond one by one, saying, Surely it's not I. Jesus answers, The one who dips with me into the dish, saying that the Son of Man will indeed die, but it would be better had his betrayer not been born. Clearly, Jesus knows that Judas is the one. But how does he know? Matthew repeats Mark, adding that Judas says, Surely it's not I, Rabbi, with Jesus responding simply, You have said it. In Matthew, both Jesus and Judas know that the other knows. Luke gives us a very abbreviated version of Mark and Matthew, adding nothing new. But John gives us the most vivid, detailed account. Jesus is deeply troubled. And with his announcement of betrayal, the twelve are at a loss as to what to say. Peter gestures toward John and motions for him to ask Jesus, Which one? Jesus replies, the one to whom I hand the morsel after I've dipped it. Judas 
then takes up the morsel, and he gets up and leaves. And John's closing comment is chilling. And it was night, eternally, for Judas. Here, both Jesus and Judas know the other knows, and Judas faces a dramatic moment of decision, a decision that will have eternal consequences for him and for all of humanity. And then he makes his choice. Now we come to the final step in Judas's betrayal, Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. We read in Mark, chapter 14, 43 to 46. Then, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived, accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs who had come from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. His betrayer had arranged a signal with them, saying, The man I shall kiss is the one. Arrest him and lead him away securely. He came and immediately went over to him and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. At this, they laid hands on him and arrested him. Matthew 26, 20-25 reads, While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived, accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs, who had come from the chief priests and the elders of the people. His betrayer had arranged a sign with them, saying, The man I shall kiss is the one. Arrest him. Immediately, he went over to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus answered him, Friend, do what you've come for. And then stepping forward, they laid hands on Jesus and arrested him. Luke 22, 52-54, gives us additional information. While he was still speaking, a crowd approached in front, and in front was one of the twelve, a man named Judas. He went up to Jesus to kiss him. Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? His disciples realized what was about to happen. And they asked him, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said in reply, Stop, no more of this. Then he touched the servant's ear and healed him. And Jesus said to the chief priests and temple guards and elders who had come for him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? Day after day I was with you in the temple area, and you did not seize me. But this is your hour, the time for the power of darkness. After arresting him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter was following at a distance. And finally in John. Chapter 18, 10 through 12. When he had said this, Jesus went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley to where there was a garden into which he and his disciples entered. Judas, his betrayer, also knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. 
So Judas got a band of soldiers and guards from the chief priests and the Pharisees and went there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, knowing everything that was going to happen to him, went out and said to them, Whom are you looking for? They answered, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am. Judas, his betrayer, was also with them. When he said to them, I am, they turned away and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom are you looking for? They said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill what he had said, I have not lost any of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword away into its scabbard. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father gave me? So the band of soldiers, the tribune, and the Jewish guards seized Jesus, bound him, and brought him to Annas, the high priest, first. So once again, we must ask, what do we learn from the comparison? Mark, again, gives us the naked facts. Judas leads an armed crowd sent by the religious leaders to arrest Jesus. He greets Jesus with a kiss, a signal that this is the man, and the authorities arrest Jesus. Matthew repeats Mark with the addition that Jesus says to Judas, friend, do what you've come for. Luke adds considerable detail, having Jesus point out the irony of Judas betraying Jesus with a kiss, Peter cutting off the right ear of the high priest's servant, and Jesus healing him. Jesus' intervention and finally, Jesus arrest with Peter following the crowd to the high priest's house. John gives us considerably more information, adding topographical detail, Jesus' I am exchange with the crowd, Jesus requesting the release of his disciples, and the name of the high priest's servant, Malchus. In the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. But oddly, not in John. And then we have varying degrees of detail and chaos as Jesus is arrested. So where does that bring us? Well, number one, the religious leaders wanted to arrest Jesus, believing that the very survival of the nation was at stake, but not knowing how to do it without causing a riot. Number two, Judas went on his own initiative to the religious leaders with a plan to have Jesus arrested quietly, prompted by Satan. Number three, the religious leaders agreed to the plan and they offered Judas 30 silver coins or about $240. Number four, Jesus knew what Judas had done and after the Last Supper, Judas knew that Jesus knew. Number five, late at night, 
Judas leads a large crowd to the Garden of Gethsemane where he knew Jesus would be, identifies him with a kiss, and the authorities arrest Jesus, taking him to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, where an executive session of the Sanhedrin would charge him with the capital crime of blasphemy. So, we know the facts of the case. But what was Judas's motivation for betraying Jesus? That's a good question, because it really takes us to the crux of the matter. And Scripture gives us some insights. We know that Judas was the only one of the twelve not from Galilee. He was from Kirion a village about 10 miles south of Hebron in Judah. So Judas was an outsider. We also know that he was keeper of the money purse, entrusted by Jesus with the group's common funds, and John tells us that he used to steal from it. John also tells us that Jesus recently chastised Judas publicly at a dinner party at Bethany. We read in John chapter 12, 1 through 8. Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. They gave a dinner for him there, and Martha served while Lazarus was one of those reclining at table with him. Mary took a liter of costly perfumed oil made from genuine aromatic nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and dried them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Then Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, and the one who would betray him, said, Why was this oil not sold for three hundred days' wages and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and he held the money bag and he used to steal the contributions. Jesus said, Leave her alone. Let her keep this for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. So perhaps that's the motive. Maybe Judas felt humiliated and stung by Jesus' public rebuke, Judas' anger prompting him to betray the Lord. Well, it's difficult to discern someone's motives even in the best of circumstances. And with Judas, it's even more difficult. Here are some more possibilities. As little more than a petty thief, Judas saw an opportunity to betray Jesus for the money the religious leaders paid him. Or, Judas firmly believed that Jesus was the Messiah but he grew disillusioned at Jesus' actions, at his criticizing the religious leaders, rather than leading a revolt against the Roman authorities. Or, Judas believed that Jesus needed to be restrained until after Passover, agreeing with the religious leaders that Jesus' behavior would likely cause a catastrophic riot at the festival. And some even suggest that Judas was simply following Jesus' instructions, thus ensuring that Jesus would be turned over and put to death in order to fulfill Scripture. So where does that lead us? 
Regardless of Judas's motives for betraying Jesus, he clearly did not anticipate the results, Jesus' condemnation and crucifixion. When it happens, Judas is stunned. He rushes back to the religious leaders, hurls the money at them, saying, I have sinned in betraying innocent blood. Only Matthew reports on Judas's suicide. We read in Matthew 27, 3-5, Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that Jesus had been condemned, deeply regretted what he had done. He returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned in betraying innocent blood. They said, Ah, what's that to us? Look to it yourself. Flinging the money into the temple, he departed, going off and hanged himself. Now, Luke gives us a very different account in Acts chapter 1, 15 to 20. In Acts, we read, During those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the brothers. There was a group of about 120 persons in one place. He said, My brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who was the guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was numbered among us and was allotted a share in this ministry. He bought a parcel of land with the wages of his iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines spilled out. Now this became known to everyone who lived in Jerusalem, so that the parcel of land was called, in their language, Akeldama, that is, the field of blood. For it's written in the book of Psalms, let his encampment become desolate, and may no one dwell in it, and may another take his office. So whatever Judas's motivations were for betraying Jesus, the fact is, he did. And Peter's words in Acts sealed Judas's reputation forever. History's judgment of Judas is best expressed in Dante's Divine Comedy when Dante and Virgil reach the ninth, ninth circle, the very pit of hell, and sees Satan himself encased in ice. I read to you from Canto 34 of the Divine Comedy Inferno. Oh, how amazed I was when I looked up and saw a head, one head wearing three faces. One was in front, and that was bright red. The other two attached themselves to this one, just above the middle of each shoulder. And at the crown, all three were joined in one. In each of his three mouths, he crunched a sinner, with teeth like those that raked the hemp and flax, keeping three sinners constantly in pain. The one in front, oh, the biting he endured was nothing like the clawing that he took. Sometimes his back was raked clean of its skin. That soul up there who suffers most of all, my guide Virgil explained, is Judas Iscariot, the one with head inside and legs out kicking. So that about wraps it up. Judas betrayed Jesus. But honestly, 
I think Judas is one of the most complex characters in all of Scripture. He's certainly not the cardboard cutout evil figure that we often see him as being portrayed. Judas, why did he do it? Why did he do it? I'll see you again tomorrow. Bye-bye.